You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So today, we get to a new character, Joshua. Uh, He's the heir apparent to Moses. He leads God's people into the promised land, but before he does so, I think uh, though the whole book is about Joshua, the book of Joshua, before he even starts the first battle, there is an encounter in Joshua chapter 5 that really sets the entire um, scene for the rest of the book and sets up the premise of how things are to be. So we are going to be reading in Joshua chapter 5. So let's read Joshua five thirteen to 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our enemies? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Have you ever noticed that the Bible (laughs) has a lot of weird stories? It is a strange book. It's ancient Near Eastern literature in the Old Testament. And here this story is kind of enigmatic. It might make you puzzle. It's actually meant to make you puzzle and to think and to meditate and try to connect the dots with other stories, some which we have already covered, like the encounter with Abraham that we talked about in Genesis chapter 15 a couple of weeks ago, but uh, to connect with all of these other stories of how God encounters human beings in a very personal, holy, complete way. So who is this guy that Joshua meets? Why in this way? We're going to answer these questions from this uh, strange story with these three different points today. First of all, the wrong question. Yeah, that's what Joshua asks. Secondly, the righteous answer that this Holy One gives. And then the proper response that Joshua shows. The wrong question. Yeah, Joshua asks the wrong questions, but you can kind of understand why. You see, he's, um, this is before any battle has taken place in the promised land, but he knows. Boy, does he know. You know, 40 years ago, he and Caleb, along with 10 other spies, went into the land and saw and did an, a spied on the land to see the battlements, the uh, walled cities, the fruitfulness of the land, the giants who were in the land, that he knew the opposition, he knew it well. And in the ensuing 40 years, because of the disobedience of Israel, Joshua was able to um, gain a lot of wisdom, I think, and a bit more humility, and a deeper understanding of the brokenness and fallenness and faithlessness of God's own people, And now he is on his own before the battle of Jericho, wondering what to do, because this will be the first time they face a new technology called the walled city, a thick, 
high impregnable wall. How is this going to work? He doesn't have a clue. He doesn't have a plan. He doesn't know how. You can almost hear the worry in his mind. You can almost see him pacing back and forth. And then, in the distance, he sees this man coming with a drawn sword by his side. And he asks, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And I say that's the wrong question. Too often, that's the questions we ask. You know, are you for us or against us? Either or. Um, And we often have asserted, just like most of the nations have asserted, that God is on our side. We have the righteous cause. We are the ones who are in charge. The real issue is not, are you for us or against us? That's the wrong question. Abraham Lincoln was asked, in what would I think we would consider the righteous cause of the Civil War where the North was trying to abolish and eliminate the slavery that was happening in the South, whether God was on the side of Lincoln. And he responded, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And Lincoln astutely observed that both North and South had used God, had claimed to read their Bibles, had prayed to the same God for victory. But the real question is not, is God on my side? Am I on his? Be wary of anyone, anyone who claims that God is on my side. We often don't realize the presumptions we're making when we say things like that. And all too often I've heard preachers divvy things up. And what happens is like those people out there, they're the enemy. Look at us. We're so great. We're on God's side. And yet what that does is it creates a self-righteousness in us. And it will justify violence. And it will justify ungodly practices against other people just because God is on our side and we have to win. History is filled with the shrapnel and bomb blasts where God was used as their divine rubber stamp and approval for bigotry, for greed, for hatred, for violence. That might be easy for us to see how God is used in those ways in past. It's not always easy to see it in the present. You know, we Christians in an age now of marketing and consumerism have domesticated God, bottled and branded belief in such a way that he appeals. In other words, we say God uh, to this angel of the Lord figure, this one who has met Joshua, can you put that sword away? Can you just kind of um, calm it down? We want you to be friendly and nice and acceptable to everyone. Churches have become purveyors of spiritual goods, doling out good feelings week after week. A little peace, a little prosperity, a little stress relief, a safe place for your children, a good place to attend, to feel good about yourself in the end, a bit better than others, at least we're trying to be. Look at what good we are doing, and of course, God is on our side. Look at how he's blessing us. Look at how wonderful things are. He's, and we follow our agenda. And yeah, 
No wonder Stanley Hauerwas has critiqued Christianity in the United States by saying more Christian Americans may go to church than other counterparts in Europe, but the churches to which they go do little to challenge the secular presumptions that form their lives or the lives of the churches to which they go. In other words, we're just like every other organization. We're just trying to do our own thing because we're really not asking the right question. And we better defend what we're doing, and we think we need to defend God himself. Howard Wass continues and says, Never think that you need to protect God. Because anytime you think you need to protect God, you can be sure that you are worshiping an idol. Yeah. This one who meets Joshua needs no protection. This one who meets Joshua does not say he's on our side. We don't get to use this one. We don't get to use God. That's the wrong question. So, what's the righteous answer? So what we get from this human divine figure in this story, he says, no, I'm not on your side, or I'm not for the enemies, he says. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. <laughs> yeah. Joshua heard the answer and he fell down and worshipped because that is the righteous answer. The question isn't whether God is on my side, but am I on God's side? Now, this one seems to appear in human form, but we know from Joshua's response there is much more than a human being going on here because he worships him. Joshua wasn't the first to encounter this holy otherness of God in some visible human-type form. We have seen it in different stories already. Abraham, as he encounters God as the flaming torch and a smoking fire pot in Genesis 15, or as the three visitors uh, in Genesis as well, or how Moses at Exodus 3 sees the angel of the Lord in the burning bush that doesn't, is not consumed, but God's presence is there and he is holy. Later on, Isaiah will fall down and say, woe is me. Even into the New Testament, we see encounters with the living God, and the response is to fall down flat to be so humbled and shocked and astounded, to be afraid. Depart from me, Peter says, for I'm a sinful man. When a mortal being encounters the immortal, perfect God, the first response is not a feeling of comfort, but sheer terror. How can we be in his presence? He is unequaled, unmatched, unrivaled, perfect. And Joshua knew he was none of these. An encounter with the holiness of God will never be where we start to try to make a deal. We can't say, oh, yes, Lord, I will follow you if then you haven't encountered the living God and you don't realize who you're dealing with. You're trifling with God then. There is no precondition. There's no bargaining. There is no way around it. The only proper response is going to be fall down and worship. He is completely in a different category than anything that we've ever encountered or could encounter in this earth. He is greater, more powerful, beyond, beyond. The righteous answer is 
I am on God's side. This is the Lord. I have come. Has God's presence ever surprised, shocked, frightened you? Has his perfection ever punctuated through and gotten to you to say, whoa, how dare I ever do anything but just stop and fall down? We learn, you know, something here. His righteous answer goes beyond the fact that, hey, look at me. The angel of the Lord, this figure with a drawn sword, says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. I have come. That is God's answer to our dilemma and plight, that he would come among us. And when God comes among us, he comes among us to rescue, to redeem, to save, for his will to be done on this earth. I know it's a strange story. We want to keep God abstract (laughs) and out there, and God wants to be graphic and present with us and say, I have come. I've mentioned a few times that God has come in a variety of ways in the Old Testament text. And here, this one is another theophany, the angel of the Lord. I think Alec Mortier uh, says it well. He gives a good summary about what is actually all going on here. It seems to be that by means of the angel of the Lord, God can come among people safely. The angel is revealed as a merciful accommodation whereby the Lord, the Holy Lord, can be present among a sinful people. When were he to go with them himself, his presence would consume them. The angel of the Lord is the mode of divinity whereby the holy God can keep company with sinful people. There is only one other in the Bible who is both identical with and yet distinct from God, one who, without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of deity, or diminishing the divine holiness, is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners and who will affirm, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet a supreme display of his outreaching mercy. Yes, we come to understand that these appearances already prefigure the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh that these are just little touch points along the way saying, hey, I'm going to solve this. I'm going to come to your rescue. And when I do, I come in a way that is tangible and graphic in a human form that you can both understand, but also that I can fight on your side because I am with you and I will make sure that you are on my side and my will is going to be done. This is, yes, the commander of the Lord's army, and this is the righteous answer. And now, the proper response. I mentioned it before. When Joshua hears the news of who this is and who he is and what's going on, does he jump for joy? Does he try to give him a high five? Is he excited? Is he thrilled? Is he filled with uh, ecstasy? No, he is humbled. He is freaked out and he falls down. He's not full of pride. He is filled with utter humiliation. He doesn't just kneel down in reverence. He falls prostrate to the ground. It says in Joshua 5, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? 
And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Worship, it's not optional. It's the only proper response to God's promise and presence in your life. And here, worship is not just um, falling down. Did you notice Joshua asks, what does my Lord say to his servant? He doesn't try to do anything. He doesn't try to bargain. He doesn't try to petition this commander of the Lord's army. He just is all ears. What do you say? I will do. Listening. That's real worship listening to the Lord, to truly take in what he has to say. It's more important than anything else you can do in worship. Yeah, we love the music. We love the band. We love the praise. We love uh, to get into it, our whole body, in worship, to respond to God's goodness and grace. But the best thing you can do in worship is to listen and to let God have his say in your life. And seriously, I can tell so many Christians these days are spending more time letting others have their say in their lives. From political pundits to marketers to you name it, to entertainers, we are letting everyone have their say and we're listening to everything hours and hours of week and just 30 minutes an hour a week to hear what God has to say. You think that can counter 20, 30, 40 hours of doom scrolling through social media or listening to cable news? I don't think so. Joshua would say, fall flat <laughs> on your face. Listen, don't do anything. Jesus, you know, on the night before he was betrayed, or the night he was betrayed, Jesus, you know, the night when he was going to be betrayed, the night before his crucifixion. He has a prayer in John chapter 17. It's the only gospel that records it, where in that prayer, it's called the high priestly prayer, he prays to his father and says, I sanctify myself. You know, that word sanctify is holy. It means to make holy. And you're going like, wait a minute, Jesus is already holy. What? It means now he is fully set aside and consecrating everything, every ounce of his power, his ability, his focus, his mental, everything is focused on the task before him, that cross. That's, he's setting it all apart. And in the garden of Gethsemane, he falls flat on his face. He is astounded at the horror that will face him in a few hours. And yet, he doesn't ask God to be on his side. He doesn't ask God to get his way. In the end, he says, May your will be done, Father, not my will. There is no other way. All we are called to do is to soak in how Jesus is the greater Joshua who listens to the Father, who completes everything perfectly and does it for us. All we need do is soak it in, to shut our mouths 
and let God's defining work in the person of Jesus Christ be that which controls and moves and motivates us. Joshua, yes, he is the general of God's people as they take over the land and conquest, but it is God himself who is the commander-in-chief, God himself who is king, Jesus who is Lord. In a meeting of a small group of missionaries in China, James Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission Society, he reminded uh, these missionaries there are three different ways that you can try to do the Lord's work. He says, one is to make the best plans we can and carry them out to the best of our ability. Okay. Or having carefully laid our plans and determined to carry them through, we may ask God to help us and to prosper us in connection with him. Or yet another way of working is to begin with God. To ask his plans, to offer ourselves to him to carry out his purposes. That's what this story in Joshua is all about. Joshua's response was just to fall down in worship and to listen. That was Jesus' response, that God's will is done and not his own. And may we now fall down in worship and get up in service, aligned into God's will through Jesus Christ.